shut up and give the frog a chance. Well, um, so I don't know about you, it's kind of that period when weather's changing and you begin to feel a bit, you know, kind of, um, but I mean, those of you who've been camping would know nothing about weather change, would you? <coughs> Moving on quickly. I did that camping once, anyway, I've survived that and got over that when I was about 18. <laughs> uh, I know a few uh, new ones of you have arrived. What I meant to say yesterday was I, me- I brought a whole pile of these. These are Moreland's Mints. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, Moreland's uh, Christian Theology and Training. Uh, for courses that take your breath away. Now, isn't that clever? <laughs> Here, pastor, try them out. <laughs> so there's a few piles of mints over there if you want a packet of Moreland's Mints. And uh, for those of you just recently, right, loads of you bought these uh, books. I've only got a few left, and uh, I brought a whole pile of them, about uh, 60 plus. So uh, these are still available. Uh, there's about half a dozen or so copies left. And if you're only popping in this morning, forgive the advert, but uh, please have a look at these. They're fantastic resources. One-stop Bible companion. The all-wanted Bible guide. Loads of stuff on the Lord Jesus. Loads of stuff if you go into the internet, you can download and PowerPoints and the like. And uh, then every Bible book analyzed. I mean, now we all know about the book of Jonah, don't we? Now, it's easy to find Jonah in the Old Testament, isn't it? Because it's next to Obadiah. But once you've located Jonah, we all know about Jonah and he had a whale of a time and down in the mouth and all those jokes and all at sea. But what's its relevance for today? Hmm. Well, this will tell you. Mission and motives. Praying for revival. Renewal and alphas going on. How about death and resurrection? He becomes a metaphor. Jesus compares himself directly with no other prophet except Jonah. It's astonishing, isn't it? This reluctant one, in your anger, don't sin. I mean, when you get to the end of Jonah, it's like some kind of modern play where you think they're all going to live happily ever after. And he looks like he needs a dose of Prozac or something. He's such a misery, you know, down in the dumps. But what I love about uh, Jonah is the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The God of second chances. And aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that, uh, you know, when you've screwed up and messed up, uh, God is not through with you? I mean, he messed up big, big time, didn't he? And, and that's the kind of thing this book does for, for every Bible book. And then uh, I mentioned other things. Focus on salvation. Focus on being a Christian, the Christian in the world, the Christian life. Uh, vocations to be fulfilled. I mean, it's loads and loads of stuff. And I, I, I like the stuff on focus on the last things, the triumph of the Lamb, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, Jesus is coming, etc., as well as all those things about getting older and preparing for death and coping with bereavement and looking forward to heaven. And they're all in this uh, beautifully bound. It's actually glued and stitched together so that it, it won't just fall apart. It's built for a, you know, a, a long inning. Sometimes our paperbacks we get, you know, when you've used them a couple of times, you're beginning to sing that chorus, aren't you? Binders together, Lord, <laughs> binders together. Well, these are, these are for the long haul. And as I said before, uh, some of the prophets come to Moorlands. Some of them are plowed back big time into making them available for the majority world church around the world. So on behalf of, of all those uh, folk who are going to benefit, thank you. And so there's just a few left. 30 pounds to you, half price. And we ran out of the free book. And if, if you just let, is it, it's John, isn't it, and Daphne? Is, is it, I've got it, Brian, Brian, 
Brian, sorry, I didn't get your name right, Brian. I was so overwhelmed by it. He tells me he's 76. Isn't that amazing? I thought he was much older. But anyway, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> he looks fantastic, doesn't he? I said to him, godliness clearly is good for you, you know. So thank you, uh, Brian and Daphne. You've done a great job in flogging all those books. Uh, Brian, you and your daughter look fantastic this morning. <laughs> well, thank you very much publicly for all your hard work. Uh, and there are available at the back. And if you get a, a list of, uh, of those of you who didn't get the free book, then uh, we'll get some sent up, even if it comes, has to come by uh, um, Caris Carriages or something. <laughs> so we'll get them to you. So if you bought uh, a book and you haven't got your freebie book, we'll get them up uh, in due course. Um, and, uh, and don't forget to pick up your mints. Just a few less. So they're 15 pounds, half price. Now let's, uh, let's come again to God's Word. And I'm going to read it uh, bit by bit in sections because we have uh, a number of things we want to cover, I want to cover, in this whole theme of living the dream and living with dreams and then living with whole areas of, uh, of difficulty and, uh, and trials, and etc. But this morning we want to think about living with hope. We also yesterday thought about what happens when we're living with disgrace. But today we want to finish on this uh, great exuberant note of living with and, and in hope. Uh, the Bible talks much about hope, and hope in the Bible is not a kind of forlorn hope. I hope, quote, as many folk will hope they win the lottery, etc. Uh, hope is solid. It's, it's just a matter of when it's coming. So living with biblical hope. But let's uh, once again uh, just pause and pray. Father, grant that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now come with me and we'll read a, a little section that will take us through the first uh, thing I want to say. So over to Genesis chapter 41, Pharaoh's having his dreams and uh, the... Uh, the, uh, baker the cupbearer reminds himself that he's forgotten Joseph. And we read in verse 14 of Genesis 41. And if you weren't here the last couple of days, don't worry. This is a self-contained talk. So even if you don't know the background, hopefully uh, that won't be uh, pertinent. I'll be assuming you know you didn't hear the other three talks. So verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he'd shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you, you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And then he does get the answer. And you go on to verse 39. After Joseph has outlined to him not only the vision but also the strategy. A lot of folk are good at vision casting and haven't got a clue how you get there. Others are great at strategy and haven't got a clue where they're going. <laughs> Joseph is the best manager in the Old Testament at one level. He's the best manager because he knows where they're going and he knows how to get there. Of course, some say Mo uh, Noah was the best uh, manager because when the world went into liquidation, he floated a company. Well, I don't know about that. Now we're on to verse 39. 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, many years ago now, when the now defunct Liberal Party was around uh, and the polls were looking favorable as they were heading towards a general election, in a barnstorming speech, the then leader of the Liberal Party, David Steele, said some rousing words to the troops. He said, go home and prepare for government. And unfortunately, they didn't get a coalition, and that was the end of that. And as we enter these latter chapters of Genesis, we are being introduced to a God's go home and be prepared and get ready for government. For all that's been going on in the narrative of this young 17-year-old boy with his Belisha beacon, stand out a mile, you know, stuff is simply preparing him for what we've now read about. He's coming to a position of royal authority and power. He's being prepared for government. As we've said uh, on other occasions, that a full cup requires a steady hand, and God knows what he's about when he's preparing his servants. Have you noticed what age Joseph started his public ministry? Does that ring any bells? Okay, yeah, just making sure you're on the page. And here he is at 30 years of age. He's been prepared out of sight for a ministry that's going to save his people. And now at 30 years of age, he comes to royal prominence. How does he get there? Well, here's our first point. Here's a lady sucking a lemon. Anybody like doing that? My daughter does. Don't ask why. And, oh, it, really? Your husband? See me afterwards about that. Okay. Well, here's our first thought then. Because I like the desserts. Keep sweet. When life is bitter. Keep sweet when life is bitter. We've been thinking about Joseph and what he went round in. In chapter 37, in a matter of hours, his whole life where he was the favored son turned 180 degrees, and he was now a nobody, taken into captivity, sold into slavery, soon in prison, and for years he's sweating away in a jail through no fault nor crime of his own. And now suddenly, as we read in the narrative, from nowhere, this nobody is projected onto the public stage and becomes, next to Pharaoh, the greatest guy in the whole of Egypt. Another 180-degree turn. Suddenly, it's all turned around. Mm. We'll think about that for a few moments, if we may. He was, says chapter 41, verse 14, quickly brought. When he was 17, he thought himself a somebody when he was a nobody. 
He's like the kid, you know, because he's got this, you know, kind of big flashy coat. He's like the kid you see at the lights sometimes with a baseball cap back, you know. One, at one period, somebody gave me, gave me the previous car I had as well as this one. Uh, it was, it's a four-liter Lexus this guy gave me. He lost his license going down uh, hills in Somerset. He got five sets of points for running at 36, 37 miles an hour down this same hill. <laughs> Smile. And he gave me his, his old Lexus because uh, his defense was the car was too big and he kept running down the hill and with a smile they banned him from driving. He gave me a four liter Lexus. It does 155 miles an hour, I am told. <laughs> I mean, you know, there isn't a rev in my name for nothing, but anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> and you're sitting at the lights and there's the boy racing, he's got his cap on, he's 17, he's just passed this test and he's looking at you, you know, and he's going vroom, 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 in his 15 year old souped up Corsa. And if I was not a Christian, I could be saying, you're feeling lucky, punk. Because, <laughs> you know, you put your foot down on this Lexus, and it says, do you really want to do that? And you just keep your foot there, and you say, you say, yeah, yeah, I'd like to do that. And it says, okay, let's have a party then. <laughs> and you could just see him, you know, and there's the kid going, oh, where did he go? Oh, you know. And Joseph's like that. He's poncing around. He's 17. You know, he's, he's now got his... Corsa for passing his test and now at 30 years of age through all the trials he's been through God's going to present him with a, a Ferrari or something even better a Bugatti Veyron Whoa. cost 5 million quid for Volkswagen to make them and they sell them for 800,000 I know a guy who's recently bought one just for a mere million quid I mean, somebody's got to do it, haven't they? <laughs> and here's the boy racer at 17. He's a nobody thinking he's, you know, Jensen Button. And at 30, he's the world champion racing driver. This sudden change around in his fortunes. How did that happen? And does it happen? And what's it got to do with you and me? Just up the road from where I was born in Liverpool, about 20 miles up the road, is a place called Southport. It's the kind of place where on the 12th of July, Orange Day, all the Orange Lodge bands go up there and get joined, you know, by various folk from Ulster and elsewhere. And up they go to Southport for a day out. And if you go to Southport, you can stand on the, uh, the seafront, on the promenade, and if you've got a pair of uh, you know, binoculars, you might be able to see the sea. <laughs> it's moved. It's a long way out. And you just can walk until you, know, you get to the sea. Now, it comes in a wee bit, but whatever's happened, you know, climatologically or whatever, I don't know. But the fact is the tide is a long way out now from Southport Promenade. Just like the tide's a long way out in Western Europe and in Great Britain when it comes to people believing the gospel. Your pastor's already prayed this morning for, for revival. When I was a pastor in East London, a lady came to me at a time, we probably, it was early days, we probably had 100, 120 folk, and she said to me, uh, it was a Baptist church, she said, I, uh, I want to go to a smaller church. She said, I'm, I, I'm overwhelmed in this big church. 
I said, did you know Spurgeon, you know, down at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he had five or 6,000 folk. He used to say in the 19th century, I wish I could take a small Baptist church in the country with just three or 400 members. The last church I served, we had a network of probably six, seven, eight hundred adults, hundreds of kids, whatever. And folks say, oh, well, we, you know, we're already full. And I just think, you're having a laugh, aren't you? Why? You can stick all these folk on almost one train going up to London in commuter time any morning. What do you mean? I phoned a friend up in my native Liverpool and having a real ministry of uh, popping balloons when they get folk get a bit too inflated. He was a mate. I said, how's things going in your church? Oh, he said, couldn't be better. I said, really? Yeah. I said, what do you mean, couldn't be better? Oh, he said, we're getting about 120 people. I said, and you live in Heighton? Yeah. I said, well, I reckon there's probably, I don't know, 30, 36,000 people there. Yeah. So if it was like 300 times better, it couldn't be better then, could it? And do you know when the kind of conversation goes quiet? I mean, he's got 120 people, and there are 35,000, maybe a bit less, are thereabouts, who don't know Jesus Christ. And this joke is telling me it couldn't be better. What planet are you on? And that's the kind of world we're living in. The forces of secular humanism that express themselves in a whole variety of ways have swept over Great Britain. Uh, and it would take too long to talk about all these lovely phrases like post-modernity, whatever. The fact is, <laughs> the world in which some of us, into which some of us were born is a very different world that our children and our grandchildren have inherited. A world where in England's green and pleasant land, Christians get arrested for handing out religious literature. Isn't that amazing? And where we are still, it's very, very difficult to get on the radio. That's why American, you know, Christian radio, TV, whatever. But not here. It's all controlled. We are state-controlled. Some years ago, I was doing some stuff uh, in Colossians at the Keswick Convention. And every time I spoke about paganism, I had to stop and say paganism with a small p. Because the National Pagan Society, listening in on the radio, might be offended by the fact that I've used paganism and forgot to say it was with a small p rather than a big p, and then I was insulting them. It's an interesting place we live in, isn't it? And don't wear emblems of your faith at work, and don't bring your faith into all this kind of stuff. This is the kind of world we inherit. And here's the question, is God able to turn it all around? Joseph is a paradigm of what can happen when God takes one person and turns it all around for his glory. It's called revival. Did you know, for instance, between 1695 and 1730, only one new nonconformist chapel was built in London? Nonconformist, Baptist, congregational, you know, whatever, independence. And uh, Bishop Burnett said, it was taken for granted amongst the great men of the church that nonconformity, that is anything that wasn't the church of England, would die out within a generation. But he hadn't reckoned on God. Because in 1735, uh, Daniel Rowlands and Howell Harris, a school teacher and a clergyman, were converted down in Wales. And that same year, a young preacher called George Whitfield was converted. Whitfield was undoubtedly one of the greatest, if not the greatest, preacher ever produced in Great Britain. And then in 1738, 20, famously on the 24th of May, 
An Oxford don, John Wesley, felt his heart strangely warm towards Christ. By August 1739, encouraged by Whitfield to take to street preaching, Whitfield could write in his journal, the Spirit of God is moving on the face of thousands in Great Britain, he'd say. The word of the Lord runs swift, and Satan falls like lightning from the sky. And suddenly, through the 18th century, this vast methodistical revival burst in. As all historians know, it saved us from the bloody 1789 storming of the Bastille French Revolution. Methodism revolutionized the face of Britain, which was sunk in sometimes unconscionable wickedness. It's called revival. It's a long time ago, though, isn't it? But of course, God moves still, doesn't he? A few, it must be 20 years ago now, I was out in the States doing a missions conference with the Southern Baptists, and I met a guy called Douglas Knapp. You've never heard of Douglas Knapp, I suspect, but in the Southern Baptist Convention, he's known as the man with the best biceps. Arnie, eat your heart out. Why? Well, Douglas Knapp wasn't a preacher. He was, he, was, he was an agricultural missionary in Tanzania. And one day he was out in his Jeep when he was ambushed by tribesmen. They took him to this vast sort of compound where their chief lay dying. And they made Doug an offer he felt he shouldn't refuse. They said, you pray for chief to be healed. If he lives, you live. He dies, you die. It sharpens your prayer focus, doesn't it? <laughs> he didn't say, now, excuse me, friends, or according to my Scofield reference Bible, I think you're in the wrong dispensation. As I said last night, he wasn't charismatic, he wasn't even asthmatic. But there is one prayer and one element in every missionary and Christian worker's toolbox that is fantastic. It's called holy desperation. Help, Lord! And he just said, oh, help. He never laid hands on the sick. He wasn't a healer. He wasn't a preacher. He was an agricultural missionary. But he, he thought, oh, help me, Jesus. And he put his hands on this guy. He prayed for him. And then a real miracle took place. Not just that the chief was healed, which he was. But then soon tens and dozens and scores and hundreds and thousands of people in this tribal group were coming to faith in Christ. So much so that Doug himself had baptized, others were baptizing too, wait for it, 24,000 people. Now, as any Baptist minister will tell you, you are very glad as a Baptist minister for Archimedes' principle. When a body is immersed in water, the water exerts an upthrust that is equal in weight to the water displaced. What? Big problem when you're baptizing folk by immersion, one, getting them down. Because some of them don't want to go. You know, they're nervous. And then the other one is, even though the water exerts enough, they've still got to get them up. Now look, no matter how much the water's helping you, if you baptize 12,000 people on that arm and 12,000 on that arm, that's why he ended up with the best biceps <laughs> in the Southern Baptist Convention. How do you explain it? Because God stepped in because God turned it all around. And I don't know what the Lord's plans are for Great Britain, but I'm not going to give in to doom and gloom, you know, and every time you read the statistics, although there's a little sort of 
kind of encouragement on the way. Numbers are not as bad as we thought. It's all about doom and gloom and there won't be a church here, you know, in X, Y, and Z years. I don't know about you, but I don't believe that stuff. I believe what Jesus said, I will build my church. He didn't say build yours, but he said, I will build mine. And, uh, you know, we can get all jingoistic. We've English, can't we? There'll always be an England. No, they won't. Get over it. Get on with it. But there will always be the church of Jesus Christ. It will never pass away. When the last word is written on human history, it will be written by the living word of God who said, I will build my church. Wow, it will never pass away. And one day, as, uh, as the prophet put it, the, the, the capstone, as he visions it, will be brought to the, the great temple of the living God, the church of Jesus, with cries of grace, grace to it. Wow. Because you see, you just never know when God's going to turn it all around. Of course, he will one day when Jesus comes back, won't he? Everybody thinks, hey, you know, that, those losers, the church, they finished it. And suddenly Jesus comes in power and great glory, game, set, and match to the kingdom of God. Period. Wow. Of course, some folks say, well, you know, Joseph, <laughs> obscurity, <laughs> being shot to prominence. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's fiction, mate. Really? Fiction. I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't happen, does it? I've got two words to make you think about it. You may have heard the two words before. I want you to listen very carefully. Nelson Mandela. Have you ever heard of him? In 1964, as he stood before the court on the 20th of April in Johannesburg, the 46-year-old Nelson Mandela talked about his desire for a just society. And he said, it is an ideal for which I hope to live for and to see realized, but my Lord, if need be, before the judge, it's an ideal for which I'm prepared to die. And a couple of months later, he was taken to Robben Island and in a two-meter-by-two-meter two stone cell for the next 25, 26 years with a 40-watt bulb and hard labor to go with it, Nelson Mandela was in seeming obscurity. With the world's press looking on on the 11th of Feb, 1990, in the shadow of the beautiful Table Mountain, 50,000 crowd, millions worldwide watching, the aged Nelson Mandela simply said, our march to freedom is irreversible. And what strikes me about Mandela is, here's a guy who somehow or other has remained sweet when life for him was incredibly bitter. And when you look at Joseph, He's a guy who's immensely sweet, even though he had every reason against his family to be bitter. Do you know this? Your trials will either make you bitter or better. And I don't know all that went on in Joseph's heart. 
All I can see is the results in his life. But I imagine he had to, like all of us have to, decide in his will and not his emotions that he was going to forgive others as he had been forgiven. I don't know about you, forgiveness is the simplest thing in the world till you have to do it. You're red raw with rage about what somebody's done to you or to your loved one. Think of the parents of April Jones this morning. But bitterness will eventually eat you up and destroy your soul and dehumanize you and make you useless to God, period. And the reason is because the only person who had every right to be angry and bitter and capricious and vengeful when they hung him up to die said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Joseph had every reason to be angry and bitter. But by the grace of God, like Jesus, not in his emotions, they come and go, but in his will, he decided otherwise. Are you a bitter person? People feel in around you the acid of your heart. Here comes acid Annie, acid Harry, bitter Benny. It'll destroy all around you and yourself, chiefly yourself. 